From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Now more working Coloradans have access to paid leave from work to care for a loved one or themselves. So you're eligible if you've earned at least $2,500 in the past year within Colorado, and you have to take it for a qualifying reason. It's a state program called FAMLI, F-A-M-L-I, not to be confused with the federal program, F-M-L-A. Today, we break down the difference between the two programs and tell you how to sign up. Then, bringing diversity of thought to religion and the importance of respecting Native traditions and our environment. You know, there's a different way of thinking about the world, and the first peoples of this land might actually have some wisdom that would be useful if you could leave your prejudice behind. We are so grateful to our members, donors, and sponsors. You are such an important part of the work we do here every day. CPR News, CPR Classical, Indy 1023, Denverite, and KRCC in Southern Colorado wouldn't be possible without you. Thank you for being a part of the Colorado Public Radio family. And on behalf of listeners all over Colorado, thank you for your support. This is Colorado Matters on CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. One thing's for sure, life is always going to happen, and often when you least expect it. As of January 1st, when it does, now more working Coloradans have access to paid leave from work for a specified time to care for a loved one or themselves. It's a state program called FAMLI, F-A-M-L-I, And it's not to be confused with FMLA, which is a federal program that offers qualified workers unpaid leave to handle qualifying personal matters. Here to fill us in on the details you need to know is employment law attorney Jesse Bonds, who works in the Colorado Springs office of the Employers Council, a human resources organization which provides workplace guidance for more than 3,000 companies and organizations in Colorado and across the West. Jesse, welcome to Colorado Matters. Thanks for having me. As I noted in my intro, by now, many of us are familiar with FMLA, which is an acronym for the Family Medical Leave Act, which is the result of a federal law passed in 1993 requiring covered employers to provide their employees with job-protected unpaid leave for qualified medical and family reasons. There are some similarities to it and this new family program, which stands for Family and Medical Leave Insurance Program, which, again, went into effect January 1st here in Colorado. Explain for us the similarities and the differences. Sure. So despite having very similar names, there are some differences between the federal FMLA, so the Family Medical Leave Act, and the Colorado Family Act. The main difference is that the Federal Medical Leave Act provides unpaid job protective leave, as you mentioned, while Colorado Family is Colorado-specific, and it provides paid leave for employees who need to take time off for qualifying reasons. Who is eligible for the family program? So you're eligible if you've earned at least $2,500 in the past year within Colorado, 
Um, and you're an eligible employee, meaning that you have to take it for a qualifying reason. So therefore, you can take it on maybe day one of your job if you meet the requirements. So there's no waiting period, which is another difference between hmm. Colorado Family and the federal FMLA. Because with the federal FMLA, you have to at least work for your employer for 12 months. You have to meet an hour requirement. So that's another difference between the federal FMLA and Colorado Family. Now, what is considered a qualifying life event? And what amount of paid time off is available? Sure. So a qualifying reason includes a couple different things. So you can take it if you have your own health issue or if one of your family members has a health issue. You can take it if you have a child, if you're adopting a child, or if you're fostering a child. You can also take it for military-related reasons, as well as domestic violence-related reasons. Um, generally, you can be granted up to 12 weeks of paid leave, though there are some situations where it can be extended up to 16 weeks of paid leave. So how is this program funded? Like, who pays for this? The program is funded through a payroll tax that was approved through a voter referendum, and it's administered by the Colorado Department of Labor and Employment. So this deduction actually began way back in January 1st of 2023, which mm. feels like a lifetime ago already. Mm. Um, and it's a payroll tax that's currently split evenly between both the employer and the employee. Um, and so if you look at your, your paychecks, you'll see this premium deduction that's already been taken. For a bit of the backstory, Colorado voters approved this state-run paid family and medical leave insurance, a.k.a. family program, through Proposition 118 back in November of 2020. Yes. And my understanding is that there are three ways that you can take this leave. Continuously intermittently or in the form of a reduced work schedule. Can you explain all three for us? Sure. So starting with continuously, that means that you can essentially be approved to take all 12 weeks at one time. So you would have 12 weeks off, which is very similar to the federal FMLA. Um, intermittently is if you have a health condition or a qualifying reason where you just need a day off or a couple days off a week, you can kind of take it in that um, smaller block component. So it's like one to two days a week. And then at a reduced schedule, if your qualifying reason requires you to take time off during the day, kind of we can move maybe from a full time to a part time. But every situation is going to look a little different. Um, so depending on the employee's particular situation and what's approved by the state, each form of leave might look a little different. So an example of continuous leave includes your family member is recovering from heart surgery and needs your full-time care for several weeks, or if you welcome a new child and would like to take 12 consecutive weeks, as you mentioned, of leave or to bond with the child. And also, if you welcome a new baby and would like to take four weeks to bond with the baby right after birth, return to work for several weeks, then go back on leave to bond with the baby for the remaining eight weeks. So a lot of different ways you can do this. Yes. Give us an example of an intermittent leave situation. Sure. So an intermittent leave situation could be a situation where an employee is experiencing maybe like a permanent health condition. Mm -hmm. um, if the state finds that to be a, a serious health condition that entitles them to the family leave, let's say, for example, it's 
migraines. Um, and they experience it maybe once or twice a week, but we don't really know how often. Mm. They can get approved to take family leave once or twice a week. So they're not taking it in a continuous and block period. So they're not taking the whole week off. They're taking it once or twice a week as needed. So that's more of that intermittent basis where it's more sporadic. Um, we kind of have a general idea of how often they might need it per week or per month, but they're not forced to take all 12 weeks in one period of time. An example of a reduced work schedule. So an example of a reduced work schedule could look at something if they are taking care of a, a loved one with a health condition, like a family member with a health condition, and they need to be the primary caretaker, let's say, in the afternoons. They could potentially get approved for having, if they have a normal eight-hour shift, they get approved for four hours each day off. And so maybe they're only working four hours a day rather than eight hours. That would probably look more common like a part-time schedule. Um, but that can be an example of like a reduced work schedule. But again, depending on what the employee needs and what they get approved for by the state, it can look a little different in each situation. Based on the funding model for family, is it at the mercy of changes to tax laws in Colorado or things like TABOR? Or is it completely independently funded? So it's currently being funded through that payroll tax by both employer and employee. Currently, it's set to be split evenly between the employer and employee. We don't have enough guidance to know if that's going to stay that way or if maybe in the future it'll be more the employer has to pay or maybe the employee has to pay it. But right now, it's currently that payroll tax funded by both employer and employee. So walk us through the process of applying for leave through the family program. Where do you start? So to apply for, for family, it's a little different than applying for federal FMLA because it's actually not ran through the employer. It's actually handled by the state. Hmm. And so back, if you can remember, to November time period of 2023, I know that feels like, again, a lifetime ago, the portal actually opened. So it's My Portal Plus. You can find it on the CDLE's website. You can log into and actually fill in an application. CDLE's website? CDLE, so the Colorado Department of Labor and Employment. Sorry, mm. my brain works in acronyms. I kind of just spit <laughs> See, them out as easy as they come. to them. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, the, you go to your My Portal and then you fill out the application online, you provide the proper documents, the application will tell you what you need to submit, and then it's actually handled through the state. And the state opened their portal early so they can handle claims and kind of get on top of them in case employees needed leave um, right as it opened in January 1st of 2024 this week. Any tips or guidelines should a person filing be aware of? For example, you mentioned documentation. What type of documentation is required and how recent does the life event have to be? So the documentation can look different for each circumstance depending on what the employee needs the leave for. And from my understanding is that the portal actually guides you through that and lets you know what documents you need to upload. For example, if it's your own health condition that you need to take the time for, it'll recommend uh, maybe like a doctor's note stating what you're suffering for, potentially how long you'll need the time off. We don't really have clear guidance as to if there's a timeline of whether or not the serious health condition or the qualifying event has to happen right there in the moment, um, or if it could have happened a couple weeks ago, and then you realize you need the leave and you're, it's going to take a little longer than you originally expected. We don't have kind of a clear guideline, but I would recommend employees, as soon as they realize that they're going to need this leave, to fill out the application because it is up for the state to decide whether or not it gets approved. So it doesn't hurt to, to try to see if you can get it approved if you need the leave. 
Yeah, I, I suspect it's going to be a lot to work out as they start this process. Can you be denied for family leave or what are some instances that would most likely happen? Sure. So it's still very early in the process, so I haven't seen anyone be denied, but potentially they could if the state finds that their their reason for the need doesn't fall on one of those qualifying reasons. Before we wrap up, is there anything else we should know about the Colorado Family Program? Uh, with the Colorado Family Program, it, it's really important to, to keep it in mind um, that it's not made to replace the federal FMLA. Instead, it's geared to run concurrently with it. And it really stepped in to fill that need for employees who are having to take 12 weeks off unpaid originally. It really stepped in to fill that need to allow employees to have some compensation and weekly wages to get them through the hard time that they're already going for. But it's really important to keep in mind that it's not getting rid of the federal FMLA. It's going to run concurrently with it. I'm just curious, do other states have similar laws or is Colorado unique in this law? I think other states are looking into it if they haven't already implemented it. I'm not aware of any off the top of my head. I like to think that Colorado is the forerunner in this and kind of leading the way in the path to opening it up to other states to encourage them to provide this this benefit to employees. We know Colorado voters passed this law, but what inspired this and what perceived need was it seeking to fill? I think one of the main components to kind of pushing this law forward can be related back to the COVID pandemic mm. and really seeing a need that employees do need to be able to take the time off. Um, a similar law that came out around the same time that this was placed on the ballot was Colorado's Healthy Families and Workplaces Act, which is another paid sick leave law. So I think Colorado really started to realize, partially due to the pandemic, that there was a need to fill to have employees be able to take the time off they need for their health conditions, for life events, while still receiving partial wage replacement. Jesse, thank you so much. This has been very helpful. Thank you for having me. That was employment law attorney Jesse Bonds, who works in the Colorado Springs Office of the Employers' Council a human resources organization based here in Colorado. She was speaking with us about the family program, which just went into effect on January 1st. It allows Coloradans who have been employed for about six months to qualify for up to 12 weeks per year of paid leave for major life events, like growing their family or taking care of a loved one or themselves grappling with a serious health condition. An additional four weeks of time may be available for certain circumstances. For more information on the program, visit the website family, that's F-A-M-L-I, dot Colorado, dot gov. We will include the website link when we post this interview to the Colorado Matters page on our website later today, which is CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters on CPR News and KRCC. It may be called the Canada lynx, but the wild feline with black tips on its tufted ears and tail has been recorded in Colorado since the 19th century. If you encounter one, purring and yowling like a loud house cat, it may be dashing through the snow after its favorite meal, the snowshoe hare. In fact, as the population of hares rises and falls in 10-year cycles, so does the lynx. About a century ago, the lynx was not an unusual sight in Colorado. Then its numbers decreased sharply. The state's last known specimen was killed near Vail in 1973. Biologists decided reintroduction was the only way to bring it back to Colorado in the remote San Juan Mountains. And though restoration has had some success, you might never see a Canada lynx in the wild. Even experienced hunters rarely encounter this secretive, nocturnal, 
and beautiful cat. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio with the support of Coble and Company. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Imagine practicing a form of spirituality that connects you to nature and the well-being of your community. And it's not solely based on a certain set of beliefs. Instead, you see your life as intertwined with the natural world. Author Vine Deloria Jr. writes about this in God is Red, A Native View of Religion. The book was reissued for its 50th anniversary. Suzanne Schoen Harjo is a writer, curator, and policy advocate. She is also a citizen of the Cheyenne and Arapaho tribes and also the Haldugi Muscogee Nation. Daniel Wildcat is a professor at Haskell Indian Nations University. He's a Yuchi member of the Muscogee Nation of Oklahoma. They spoke with CPR's Haley Sanchez. You both worked closely with Deloria. What do you think he would say about where things stand in terms of Native spirituality today? Well, I tell you what, I think we are really, you know, it's kind of one of those things where it, it in some places it's the best of times, in some places it's the worst of times. I mean, I think we do see in more than one nation, several nations uh, across the United States, a real um, interest in returning to traditional ceremonies honoring sacred places and um that's that's real and that's really manifesting itself in some places at the same token we're we're hardly a homogenous group of people uh, uh american indians and alaska natives for american indians we also see you know a number of tribes that seem increasingly dominated by business councils that often uh, seem to want to emulate the modern uh, settler view of economics and even what we think uh, being in a good condition is like. And that gets, you know, translated into that uh, worshiping of the almighty dollar. So I think it's it's really depends on the community you're looking at. And I think Vine was always very hopeful that young people would start looking back to their own uh, religious or spiritual ceremonial traditions. I think that is happening. I see a lot of young American Indian students at Haskell Indian Nations University who are really committed and involved in that now. And um, so I think there's reason to be cautiously optimistic, and yet we still seem to have the major forces of this kind of economic kind of notion of of wealth and and unfortunately uh, even health that I think is is very real, and we ha- and we have to acknowledge that, and that's always a struggle I think for our nations to kind of figure out how they can really exercise their sovereignty in the world we live in today. Is there anything you wanted to add, Suzanne, to that? No, that was so beautifully said. I will just agree with that. Okay. (laughs) Daniel, in your essay in the book, God is Red, um, this latest edition, you talk about how God is Red is still relevant today. Um, I want to have you read a passage for us. Yes. 
Our age of the Anthropocene is marked by not just one global crisis, climate change, but rather a series of global crises, economic, political, environmental, moral, and spiritual. The analysis of ideas found in God is Red remains highly relevant. Deloria's observation that, quote, we stand at a series of crossroads in the final pages of God is Red remains cogent. Interconnections of the global economy are obvious now. Threats to democracy and responsible government are being tested worldwide, especially in the United States. Despite incredible technological developments, particularly in the cyber and IT realms, environmental degradation is accelerated with climate change, as sadly evidenced by a decline in biodiversity and the continual habitat loss for threatened species, fueling historically high rates of species extinction. So can you tell us about what Deloria's, quote, non-alternative worldview and the three ways we can improve our livelihood would be? I think his non-alternative worldview, you know, was really, we always talk about, you know, alternatives and, and things that we should look at. And I always like to point out, well, for us, it's not non-alternative, but his views were always very much about how we can look to our own intellectual and spiritual traditions. And I think that's really, you know, kind of one of the key things that he emphasized throughout his work. I mean, he was always talking that we first look to our own traditions. Secondly, that we recognize a sort of kinship view with the balance of creation we share this world with. He had more than one essay where he used this idea of kinship with the plants and the animals and the living features of the world we live in today as being very important. And I think you put those two things together, look to our own traditions for answers, then recognize that we'd be much better off living in a world full of relatives than one of resources. And I think for Deloria, there was always a hope that if young indigenous peoples would look to those traditions, that the powers of the world we used to live in are still there. We've just become so insulated from those in the modern technological convenience of the world we live in that I think he was always advocating that, look, we can do better. And maybe it's not about sustainability so much as it is about resilience. Hmm, interesting. So also in your essay, Daniel, you write that you hope this edition of the book will find a new generation of readers who are interested in using wisdom from Einstein, where, quote, one cannot fix problems with the same kind of thinking that created them. What do you mean there? Well, I, I, I'll go back to what I just said in part. Today, we are sort of caught in betwixt and between, particularly when we look at global climate change, 
two kinds of dominant answers. One answer is we're going to have to address this big system. It's got to be large institutional change. And um, the other is, no, we can't do that. We've got to work from the ground up. Everything's going to have to be community-based and really highly invested in community. And I think that, again, it's that kind of dichotomous thinking. Well, no, it's going to either be this way or that way. I think one of the things that indigenous traditions, intellectual traditions bring us is the notion that those kind of that binary, that dichotomous kind of thinking has no place in our traditions. We really thought in such deep relational ways that what I and people like Suzanne throughout her life have advocated is let's take a look at these problems through our own intellectual and spiritual, our own cultural lens. And we might see some ways of dealing with things that the dominant society seems incapable of doing. And so that's what I'm at. We've got to really find a different way to think of things. And I think, um, you know, without going into tribal, uh, the, the specifics or details of our own ceremonial traditions, there is general wisdom that comes out of those things that we're not going to talk about, we don't share, but that we could really show people, you know, there's a different way of thinking about the world and the first peoples of this land might actually have some wisdom that would be useful if you could leave your prejudice behind to take a look at that. Suzanne, you're an activist. How did this book influence your activism when it first came out and now? And then how did it spark dialogue within indigenous circles and also among people who are not a Native American or indigenous? Like many of the books and articles and other writings that um, mine did, I first heard them from him or heard drafts or pieces. So I have a very almost kaleidoscopic memory of Vine's books because I most of them I didn't read first. I heard them in whole or in part um, on telephone calls. <laughs> and, um, and sometimes, um, you know, I'd say, oh, that's really terrific. And he'd say, no, I think I can do better. And he'd hang up and he'd call back in a few hours with something indeed better. So how did he influence me from the moment we met at the beginning of our 40-year friendship? <laughs> he influenced uh, every part of my life. He, he encouraged me or influenced me as a writer, as a radio producer, as I was uh, long ago. And he um, influenced me as a person who wanted to advocate and wanted to generally make things better and to be very specific about what I wanted, where I was going, what I needed. So next to, you know, parents and, and my brothers and my husband, he was one of the most influential people in my life. And God has read, you know, it went through three really dramatic 
versions. So how did he influence me, you know, to no end and taught me to be a better editor. (laughs) 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 Well, that's great. Everyone needs a good editor. So one of the main comparisons throughout the book is how Western religion is different from native spirituality. And Suzanne, what are the most significant differences and similarities you see between these vastly different worldviews? Well, all religions have the same beliefs, have the same values. Don't murder anyone. Don't hurt a child. Don't hurt old people. Don't hurt vulnerable people. Don't do anything bad to the people you live next to and and be good to your parents. And I mean, these are you know, your grandparents and honor your people who've come before you, honor the people who are to come. All of these are held in common with with practitioners of religions the world over. The difference is in style. The difference is in collective attitude. The difference is in how people behave with one another and with everything that they affect and that is around them that affects them. So when we say we're praying for the good day for the world, we really mean that. We mean for everyone for everything, for Mother Earth and all her children. And like people of many religions, we are close relatives of animals and birds and plants and things that people don't even think are living, like rocks. Mm -hmm. Um, We have great relationships with all of Mother Earth. If we're fortunate, if we're fortunate to have been brought up that way or to have come into it in the right way. That is not as not as someone to find out how how we do things or what this ceremony is or what that ceremony is, but someone who wants to be a part of the collective experience and who may be too shy or not feel that they would be welcome. And what they need to do if they're non-native or if they're native and Mm. are approaching this as a newcomer, they need to ask permission. They need to approach with respect, ask permission, ask, what should I do? What are the protocols? What What are the ways that I should behave? And boy, wouldn't it be a more wonderful world if people did that? just that mm-hmm. and and then abided by the answers uh, didn't just disregard the answers mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it sounds like you agree with that daniel sure do yeah i think that you know, i think the the key point that you know i started off with earlier you know and that suzanne touched on again i mean it really does make a difference you know if you live in a world full of relatives as opposed to a world full of resources. I mean, we've even gotten to the point to where, you know, I remember, oh, 50 years ago, we actually had offices of human relations. I find it really interesting in institutions now, they've been replaced by offices of human resources. Mm -hmm. I mean, 
we even look at ourselves now as as resources to each other. Well, I don't want to be your resource. I want to be your relative. And that requires respect. That requires honesty. And I mean, just think of that one slight paradigm shift. I mean, I know this is hard for us to talk about today right now. I mean, I, you know, Suzanne and I are, are sharing a worldview very widely shared among indigenous people, wherein, yeah, we extend kinship, a notion of relationality to, you know, the living world around us. And I know that's a stretch for people because right now we're doing a horrible job, even among our humankind, of treating each other with dignity and respect. And so, but I, I think we have to make that point. That's That seems to be one of the ways in which Deloria would always argue, you know, this is this is one of the advantages of indigenous thinking is it's that more comprehensive and complete, a much fuller view of what that realm of right and wrong, uh, justice, where we find that. It's not just in our human relations, but it's in all of our relations. Deloria advocated for federal law reform when it comes to religious freedom. In 1992, he spoke to people in Portland about how Native Americans face threats to religious freedom by not having access to sacred sites or religious sacraments. I talked to an elder about this problem. And he said, well, we got to make it clear. We're not going out to these isolated places to pray for Cadillacs or white loss or any of the things that the Christians are praying for. (laughs) We're going out there to pray for all of mankind and and the earth, and that's who we're praying for. We do not want to be wealthier. We do not want to drive BMWs. I said, well, I try and convey that message. That audio is courtesy of the City Club of Portland. But Suzanne, you not only worked closely with Deloria, but you were friends with him, too. Tell us about how he used humor in his writing and advocacy work. It was his mainstay. Before he got into anything serious, he would uh, joke people around. Uh, He would use humor throughout every speech he ever made, even those that were very solemn or that were angry or highly technical. He always relied on on humor and was a master at it. He was a jokester and and a humorist. He just had a great talent for humor in a way that most people don't, but almost everyone responds to favorably. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's more effective, too, for people trying to learn about something that's different from what they're familiar with. Yes. So religious pluralism, it's the idea that multiple religions can coexist in society. And the Founding Fathers built our country on this idea. Talk about the ways where we're still really far from that being an actual reality. A few of the Founding Fathers, Benjamin Franklin, uh, really had that idea about religious pluralism. But most of the Founding Fathers had an idea of manifest destiny by the one true God being Christian and um, and Protestant, and that that was um, the way the world was. And the idealists 
were interested in in a government that was not controlled by religion. And that was that was the point of it. But most of the people envisioned absolute control by the Christians. And you see that to the present time. What are some examples of how Native or Indigenous people are restricted or forbidden from freely practicing their spirituality? Something that comes to mind for me is like sacred lands being privately owned or government owned and, you know, not respecting Native burial grounds. Well, sure. Anything that that the white people thought was of value, they they coveted, they wanted it, and were willing to kill Native people for it. And so... And we have lots of lands with with we buried our ancestors and thought that that would be their final resting place. Instead, a lot of non-Native people commodified our ancestors and the precious things they were buried with, even their shoes and their their outfits and jewelry and anything that was personal and and um, was given a value in money terms. And then that was applied to a lot of the lands that were stolen, was the value of the things, the people and things that were underneath it. Uh, and that's everything from burial grounds to oil fields. It's it, the same kind of commodification. So can you... Describe any other examples of where you have seen progress and then where there's more room for improvement in terms of respecting Native spirituality? Well, Dan and I don't get beat up every time we walk out of our work or or homes just because we're Native. That's Mm -hmm. progress in our lifetime. That's a lot Mm -hmm. of progress. So except in certain places, certainly reservation border towns, uh, you don't have a lot of anti-native activity except on the sports field where mm-hmm. supposedly it's all mm-hmm. fair and love and sports to <laughs> just make fun of native people or to treat us as if we're no longer living, no longer viable mm-hmm. people. Sometimes it feels like it's... Uh, you know, one step forward, two steps backwards. I mean, it, it seems like we always making these little incremental improvements and then we'll find ourselves, oh, are we still dealing with this? You know, I mean, I, like <laughs> the sports mascots, that's still very much an issue across the country, particularly when you look at high schools. On the positive side, I think Suzanne would agree with me. Probably if I had to look back the last decade and say the most hopeful public display of allyship that I've seen was at Standing Rock, at the Dakota Access Pipeline, direct action activities. That was such an important event in so many levels. What gives me hope is that if you remember towards the very end, when government officials were threatening and, you know, you're going to have to break camp or we are going to come in with bulldozers and just level everything and remove you all. And all of a sudden, these people out of the woodwork, Vietnam veterans against the war, all of these much larger, not exclusively Native groups said, hey, we're on your side. There was some group of veterans 
on motorcycles that rode across the country to go to Standing Rock to be there in case anything was tried and said, hey, we're on your side. We're going to be here. Don't don't worry about it. And if you look at those pictures of the last week at Standing Rock, here's the hopeful side. That was started, first of all, by indigenous women. Standing Rock was started by women. But that last couple of weeks there, when they were threatened, look, if you don't move, we're going to come in and we're just going to remove you. We're going to bulldoze your camps, everything. They had that last couple of days more non-native people standing with the first peoples of this land, shoulder to shoulder with them saying, this is wrong. This isn't right. And they had a clear message, didn't they? They said, first of all, we're not protesting. We're water protectors. We're protectors. And it's not just our water. It's all of our water. Back to that more general point, our prayers, our actions aren't just for a new Cadillac or enough to go get my next, you know, Botox treatment or whatever. No, it's for the life that surrounds us. And and I think that to me really said, okay, there is an undercurrent somewhere as crazy as this world is right now. There's an undercurrent of people who get it. That to me was a hopeful event. In the presentation earlier where Vine was talking in Portland, he also talked about machine theory and this idea that Western society treats the earth and people like machines. Well, we're now seeing a great rebellion among the younger generation of scientists that the analogy of the machine does not adequately describe the physical world. And if you treat the physical world as if it were a machine, from time to time it's going to break down. Indigenous people, they see the environment as sacred. All living things are connected. These ideas that you two have both talked about already. How can these views inform our environmental stewardship today? I do think there's a change going on among people, particularly. I mean, some of the most, the best and brightest physical scientists today who are dealing with global climate change. I think um, that they are increasingly coming around to this view that says, you know, hey, this isn't a machine that needs to get fixed, the earth, but really it's going to need something much more comprehensive. And uh, I think increasingly I see scientists who are more willing to consider very deep relationality between different factors that all contribute to climate change, they now realize it's going to take not just a physical science solution, but as I've said in my writings, we really need a cultural climate change. We need that Einstein quote I'm fond of. We've got to have a new lens to look at the world and In some ways, I I would advocate the new lens is a very old lens. It's the lens of the first peoples of this land. What actions or policies do either of you hope are on the horizon to address these environmental concerns? I am hopeful, cautiously hopeful, that there will be a majority of people who recognize, not for their own narrow self-interest, but in the interest of their children and grandchildren, that we've got to do something different in terms of energy consumption and where we get our energy from. I think that 
policy movement is still going to be very important for us to keep that advocacy for that decarbonization of our energy future. Suzanne? It is a way of life that you really have to think very far ahead and very far back. We have uh, respect and are provident about your past generations, three generations back and three Mm -hmm. generations forward and your own time. So it's still that seventh generation idea and you weigh the consequences of what you're doing today against all of that. Will it honor the ancestors? Will it respect the ancestors? Mm-hmm. Will it serve us today? And will it, are we doing something that's going to provide for our children and their children and their children and their children? Mm-hmm. Or are we doing the opposite and um, acting as if everything mm-hmm. is a resource? So if we're thinking of ourselves and our ancestors and everything we drink and walk on and and everything we live next to as for sale or trade of some kind, Mm -hmm. then then we're all in big trouble. And you have Mm -hmm. to have the people who are leading with their wisdom and leading with their words. So thinking more collectively and thinking more in terms of the wholeness of our lives is the direction that I think everyone needs to go in. And the climate crisis is where we're seeing the results of people not thinking things through and not trying to decide to do good rather than otherwise. Mm-hmm. Sounds like um, these concepts and ideas really rooted in Native American uh, spirituality and their worldviews, they should and can play a big part in our discussions about culture and religion and the environment in the years to come. Describe the main message you each hope people take away from reading God is Red, maybe something that's relevant when the book first published and is still important now. So I am going to read a passage from the closing paragraph of the book, okay? and. To me, this is hopeful. And remember, this was written now 50 years ago. Vine, Suzanne and I have talked about this often. Some people have a gift or are given a gift, receive a gift, you know, to to see in the future. I, I don't know, you know, Vine never talked about this or anything, but his work is always so prescient to contemporary issues that we're dealing with now. And and I want to end with this from the last paragraph of God is Red, written 50 years ago, because it rings as true today as it ever has. It says, the planet itself calls to the other living species for relief. Religion cannot be kept within the bounds of sermons and scriptures. It is a force in and of itself. It calls for the integration of lands and peoples in harmonious unity. The lands wait for those who can discern their rhythms. The peculiar genius of each continent, each river valley and rugged mountain, the placid lakes, all call 
for relief from the constant burden of exploitation. Who will find peace with the lands? The future of humankind lies waiting for those who will come to understand their lives and take up their responsibilities to all living things. There's an opportunity. And I think increasingly I am hopeful, particularly among our young people, that they're going to see it's time to take up our responsibilities for all living things, for the life of this Mother Earth. Well, I think Vine should have the last word. <laughs> <laughs> I can see Vine right now tapping his, uh, you know, getting the ashes off his palm all saying, hey, those two Muskogees got it right for once. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Thank you both for being here. Thank, Thank you, you for having us. Daniel Wildcat and Suzanne Shone Harjo speaking with my colleague Haley Sanchez. They reflected on the 50th anniversary of the book God is Red about respecting Native spirituality and the environment and why that message is especially relevant today. Thanks for joining us and to the Colorado Matters team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis, Rachel Estabrook, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Tom Hess, Michael Hughes, Chris Ketchum, Pedro Lumbraño, Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner. And I'm Chandra Thomas Whitfield. This is CPR News and KRCC.